Hi, my name is Marie Lundberg, and I'm joined as always by Sam Sheen, my good friend and professional colleague, and this is our podcast, Captivated Audience. Welcome. Hey, Marie, how are you doing? Hi, Sam. I'm doing quite well, thank you. How's life in London? Oh, it's sunny, and we are potentially going to see spring any day now. How are things up there in Sweden? Things are good up here in Stockholm, thank you. Two seasons from now, I am hoping that with vaccinations on their way, we are going to have an event I loved going to here in the UK, and it was the Cambridge Economic Crime Symposium. Yeah, I would really like to go. Yeah, and the last time I went was in 2019, and ironically, as I was walking to my accommodation, I ran into a familiar face, and it's someone who I've become friends with over the years because we keep running into each other in the space of financial crime compliance. We've been very lucky because we've managed to persuade Al to come and join us on our podcast. Hi, Al. How are you doing today? Hi, Sam. Hi, Marie. Uh, I'm doing really well, thanks. And it's an absolute pleasure to be invited to talk to you both. It is lovely to have you here, Al. So for those who haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, could I ask you, please, to introduce yourself, your company, and where you are currently based in the world? No problem at all. Yes, yeah, so I'm I'm Al Cato. I'm one of the three directors and a co-founder of a specialist consultancy called Beyond. Uh, we're based in the UK, and most of our work is with organisations with a presence in the city of London. But over the years, we've supported many global institutions and initiatives, running remote client teams, especially in Asia and the US. And that was even before all the challenges that the last year has brought for all of us. Do you mind sharing what is your area of expertise? Um, Certainly, yes. Beyond focuses on helping financial service clients solve their critical challenges across client onboarding, operations and compliance. So we help our clients digitize, streamline, automate and ultimately transform these functions to deliver efficiencies, help manage risks and reduce costs as well. So often the teams we work with are either not quite sure where where they need to begin in terms of delivering change or how to accelerate their delivery. So we work with them to help uncover what really needs to be done, how to approach that. And then critically, we support those teams to deliver against the ultimate goals and benefits that are being targeted. And essentially, we guide them right through their transformation journey. When you start your first consultancy, even for myself, people would say, well, what is it you actually do? What's the service that you offer? You know, what did you see at the time you formed your business with your other partners as a need in the financial crime space? That's a really interesting question, actually. I might go back a little bit to answer it. So I guess I'm pretty privileged to be nearly 20 years into a career that's based around helping organizations implement and manage change, including really large-scale transformations. And I've worked at uh, institutions as diverse as like BP, Transport for London, and I spent several years delivering mergers and separations uh, in a number of different industries, which are pretty intense kind of engagements. And then around 10 years ago, I got involved in a really significant KYC transformation at a major tier one investment bank. And I ended up being really involved in the design, build and rollout of a front to back KYC and AML workflow. And that was really unique at the time. And when I was working there, it became really clear that when you take KYC, AML and financial crime all together, they present a really deep set of operational compliance and business challenges. And over the years, I and the team at Beyond have brought in, have been brought in to, to help turn around a number of failing projects, stand up new functions and deliver against a number of really challenging transformation programs. And I think there's really an overarching truth. 
which is delivering real change on the ground is genuinely very hard to do in any organization. And in complex financial services environments, that challenge is multiplied. And that's really because of the number of stakeholders, the ambitious transformation plans that many organizations actually have and they're trying to deliver against. So it might be that they're trying to upgrade systems, move over to digital flows, or integrate cutting edge technology. And when we saw this, we really recognized there was a need for an organization that was able to provide a different kind of service in this space. So we provide small, highly skilled teams of change professionals with financial service backgrounds to work alongside the client's teams and broker the change between all the interested stakeholder parties and really guide our clients on their transformation journey all the way through the design to the completion of the program to help ensure that the benefits that were originally envisaged at the beginning actually get delivered. It's so nice to have a fellow consultant on, <laughs> on the podcast, right? <laughs> yes. So Al, I just have to ask, throughout our three seasons already of this podcast, we talked to a lot of people. We are past 80 episodes. We talked about technology being a part of combating financial crime in this case. Al, in your opinion, you touched upon it a little bit. You didn't say internal politics, but I can almost hear it said <laughs> if I read between the lines or hear between the lines in this case. So in your opinion, what do you think is driving the need to implement new technologies to support us in the compliance, AML and KYC professionals fields? Well, I think there are really four key drivers. Um, the first is probably around the scale of data. The second is the complexity of regulation. Then there's the cost of compliance. And fourth, which I think is really, really important, is the need for control. Firstly, the scale of the data challenge. I mean, compliance is now inundated with data and sifting through to get the signal from the noise is becoming like an increasingly technical and specialized role. There's a real need to integrate and harmonize client data across functions and silos within an institution. And equally, we need to be able to integrate external data sources from aggregators and screening providers and make use of internal transaction monitoring data. And addressing that kind of data challenge at scale needs really cutting edge technology and capabilities. And it also needs really forward thinking teams and management who are willing to invest in and fund innovation. Al, that sounds like the holy grail. <laughs> It's not just the technology, it's getting the people with the skills to use it. And I think that within compliance, taking that data element and being able to really get the best out of it is where the future lies. But that's just one part of the problem. I think data is, is kind of a, a challenge in its own right. Secondly, there's the complexity of regulation. We see this playing out with a lot of the global banks. They're really trying to implement sophisticated systems that map all the global regulations. And the primary aim there is to try to cut down on the KYC time, enabling the reuse of information and data. That's definitely possible, but the devil is really in the detail in terms of how to make that work. And horizon scanning technologies, policy mapping tools and rule engines are all becoming increasingly important in that sort of space. And that's really needed to keep pace with the rate of change and the complexity of the regs that are actually coming through too. But Al, then there's the whole issue of the cost of compliance, right? In terms of cost of compliance, I think we all recognize that the costs in this space have just increased radically over the past few years. Uh, and most organizations are looking to automate part of their process to bring costs under control. And most importantly, try and break that linear relationship between headcount and workload, try and get people focused on more value adding tasks. There's a really interesting conversation I had at one institution where there was a, genuinely a conversation about moving a large number of clients over to a high risk, uh, a high risk rating said like, we'll prove to the regulator that we take this seriously. 
And this is one of those points where I said, essentially, we need to start demonstrating we have a risk-based approach and we need to be able to demonstrate that we approach these clients in a different way. And not only that, Al, when you think about it, think about the unintended consequences of the resource suck once you've arrived at moving those clients to high risk over the long term, right? Which is now you're going to have to monitor them more. Now you're going to have to check their files more and you're going to have to potentially stall business for them as you have to ask them more questions. And people don't think about what the fallout of those kind of changes can mean, right? Yeah. And I think this is the balance that we have to strike between operations and compliance. And it's a difficult balance to get right. And it's unique for every organization. I genuinely believe that. But yeah, there needs to be a very mature conversation about the balance between risk management and client satisfaction. And those are two of the main areas of concern that our our clients come to us with. So Al, what about the other drivers for change more generally? The final kind of area that I think is driving the move of technology within uh, within compliance is just demonstrating control. No doubt that improved technology can help organizations quickly determine whether reviews are compliant without this need to engage in prolonged data analysis. And that could be incredibly helpful. It improves the speed of response to regulatory requests. And it also helps institutions get comfortable with their risk exposure on an ongoing basis. And, and clearly that's absolutely key. And it also helps a little bit for the internal audit department. Most definitely. <laughs> well, it creates confidence. And I think that's one of the most important things within within this whole sphere is if everyone feels that the right checks and balances are in place, they're being applied the right way, the right people are getting engaged at the right point in time, and risks and issues are being escalated in the right way and in a timely fashion, everyone can almost take a breath and feel like, well, we can start to focus on how to improve rather than simply plugging gaps. Now, let's talk a little bit more, though, about the failures. It's not all unicorns and rainbows. I remember a former ACAMS colleague of mine, Ben McKee, came back from a fintech presentation, and I think it was 2018 now, where they were saying less than 20% of regtech initiatives around AML programs actually succeeded in being properly implemented. A lot of them just fell over and never really made it to operation. So everyone seems to think it's as easy as plugging in a mobile router in your house, like we've had to do because we haven't had internet for two weeks. Thank you, Virgin. What is it that people seem to do wrong? What is it that they seem to be doing that they end up with projects which sound really great and we hear about them in presentations, but they never actually come to be anything? I wish it really were as easy as plugging in a router, <laughs> but sadly it's, it's often not, not, that, not, not the case. It's fair to say I think most organizations have had at least one or two poor experiences with trying to integrate technology. Often the blame gets laid at the door of the technology itself. And I have to say, we often get brought into situations where initial attempts to either deliver a technology or a significant change have failed. And often that's been going on for some time. And eventually people get comfortable with the idea of bringing in a consultancy, perhaps an unknown face for some fresh ideas. And when you look, actually look at the reasons that most programs don't work, I find it really interesting to put the technology aside for a moment. Change is a very human process. And the common issues actually result from several classic kind of psychological biases. And these happen like early in the project. So the first one that we see a lot of the time is the sunk cost bias. We put a lot of time, effort, and potentially even emotional energy into coming up with a solution. This is the chosen route forward. And once people are thinking like that, the kind of field of vision starts to narrow and everything leads towards that one solution. 
The next big one, which has a huge role to play, is loss aversion. So people don't want to give up existing processes. As much as they might talk to a future state, they're actually really quite invested in what they do today and they want to stick with that. You need to be able to gauge how much that is driving a particular conversation or a way of thinking when you go into a, an engagement in the early stages. And the last one, which impacts all of us, no matter whether we think it does or it doesn't, is confirmation bias. This is where you only look for information that supports your preconceptions, not taking the time up front to think about what might go wrong, not going out there and sort of seeing where other projects have failed, where other people tried to do this and it didn't quite work out, and then learning from those experiences and being open to that. We see this happen a lot, and it's a very human trait. It's not something to shy away from. It's just something to acknowledge and say, right, while we're looking at this particular project, have we thought about what's going to trip us up? This is really interesting because what you're actually describing is, you know, the cycle of change in this case, all the phases that people also then you know, go through while you're implementing new technology alongside with new processes and procedures and, and all that, right? Absolutely. It could be an emotional roller coaster. It's a very human um, it's a very human event going through change. And it's no different going through that in a, in a large institution. It, it just involves a lot more people and they're all at different stages of that cycle at any one point in time. It's important to try and harmonize communications and make sure that people are thinking about the problem in the same way. I think a lot of the human biases that we just touched on actually then lead to some quite technical challenges that it's worthwhile looking for right up front in any looking at any change. And often teams will jump to looking to solve the solution, trying to work it out before they've really understood the problem statement. And that's something we're usually quite fixated upon is like, do we really know the problem we're trying to solve here? Exactly. Have we really articulated that? that? That alone can save you an awful lot of time in the long run. Okay, I can totally relate to that because there's a lot of urgency about trying to fix something. So people are desperately looking around to demonstrate they're getting something done. I mean, how does that manifest itself in terms of a bad practice when it comes to change? We, we often see people trying to utilize tactical fixes to try and solve strategic problems and sometimes vice versa. I think being honest about the scale of your challenge is really important. When we go in, there's always a conversation about right, how strategic do we want to be? Quite often there's the fire that's actually burning right now and we need to make sure that we've made things safe, got things in good shape before we start looking at a more strategic long-term solution. And that can be very, very comforting, I think, to the people that we work with. They're not just trying to go in there and do change for the sake of it. You've got to go in there and look at the problem in front of you. Okay, so it seems like we've covered a lot of classic heuristics. Is there anything else that we've possibly missed? I think the final one I really wanted to highlight was just assumption. <laughs> when you're looking at institutional levels of change, there really is a great deal of hard work involved in making that transformation look seamless. And when leading change, you really just cannot assume that all your teams and, and the partner functions within an institution are all on the same page. Communication is absolutely key. People really need to be encouraged to engage in the process, debate and challenge the way that uh, a particular change is being rolled out, and they need to be encouraged to express their opinions as well, so they feel that they're part of driving the solution. Well, uh, lessons learned from the pitfalls, the potholes, the, or obstacles is sometimes a success factor itself. But what are the sorts of things you help firms to consider to have a successful integration? In my experience, compliance is a very unique environment, and it, it presents a very interesting set of challenges. I think there are really four kind of high-level steps that need to be taken that will work uh, in any environment, but I think within compliance, they're, they're particularly important. The first is creating structure and, and forming up the project. 
The second is engaging and really forming the team. Third is generating requirements and the testing regime at the same time. And then the fourth bit is over communicating and being ready to kind of course correct as you go through the delivery. And this is all about having a plan and taking a structured approach. You're going to need to be able to maintain progress, manage risks and issues, and keep up the pace of decision making potentially across quite a long time frame. There's nothing that kills a project faster than slow decision making. You need to have a way of raising those issues uh, for discussion and getting the right people in to help make those decisions in a, in a really structured and speedy way. But Al, there's always that risk, though, you get caught amongst the weeds as everyone starts to drift away and they have other priorities. And the next thing you know, people don't seem to have remembered why they even started this project in the first place. And, you know, my opinion is in some ways, that's why some of these projects just get abandoned at the end of the day. It is absolutely essential to actually define a vision. I mean, this all comes down to understanding what you're trying to achieve. You know, what are we aiming for? Why is that a desirable future state? Um, and critically, how are we going to know that we've been successful at the end of this project? And if you lay all that out right at the very beginning, you can really generate a, a lot of impetus to actually engage with the change. But also it's the safest place to make your assessments because there's no bias at that point. You can be very objective about what you're trying to get to and then judge yourself against that at the end and keep the entire project honest. And that was part one of our podcast with Al Cato of Beyond. Be sure to join us next week for part two. Until then, please show up for your vaccination appointments. We hope you're all doing well, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>